Brian, you do not need to do another shot. You are drunk enough already. No way, man. No, I'm telling you, this is the one. This is the shot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink it, and I'm going to be able to time travel. <laughs> Wait, you think you can time travel by drinking liquor? I can go back in exactly 10 minutes. All I have to do is get real rip-roaring drunk and take one more shot, and I will go back in time 10 minutes. That's the craziest shit you've ever said, and that's really saying something. Oh, man, forget it. Here we go. Brian, you do not need to take that shot. You're drunk enough already. No way, man. This is the one that's going to... Holy shit. It worked. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I think I need a beer. Did you poop yourself? I definitely need a beer. Welcome to another fan-damn-tastic edition of Digital Noise here on the one of us.net. <laughs> because it's October. Because it's October, that. I'm so excited. Even though, once again, not a single horror title to be found. Not on the week that you're doing. Ah, I'm flip. Boom. Yeah. Next time it's just me and Richard. It'll be all hard. Nothing but horror. I'm gonna I'm gonna pop in and just be in the background and just going, God damn it. <laughs> uh anyway, this is of course our Blu-ray DVD review podcast that rewinds back through the week and tells you which items are worthy of your dollars and cents. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, recently released from an undisclosed mental facility, and I am joined by my horrible co-host, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Rots. Recently escaped from the Asylum for Pet Owners. <laughs> recently watched a movie by the Asylum. <laughs> yes, I It's did. very true. Uh, the, the, and the first Asylum movie I've ever seen that I'm actually going to recommend. Ooh, drama. A little you, teaser for later you, in the you show. you got to watch this show just for that to watch me eat crow, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sharks, if nothing else. Sharks will eat the crows. So, yes, this show. <laughs> suppose. Suppose. <laughs> ja, ba, 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 ba. This show, just ba, like all of our other ba, content, ba. is available on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast and like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash one of us net. One of Dukes encourage you guys to become subscribers to one of us net. We just dropped our Night of the Living Dead commentary exclusive for subscribers into the forum. So if you haven't visited the forums in a while, that's forums.oneofus.net. Go to the subscriber lounge. No matter what level you are, this first one, you can access it totally free. Exclusive for subscribers. Aren't you damned? We're coming to give you things, subscribers. We we actually did. Yeah, it's, it? We did. Yeah. This is the commentary. We already came. Yeah. So. Well, yes. We we have been accused of doing that a little too soon. <laughs> and what? Not me. <laughs> anything, it's more like, are you ever gonna finish? <laughs> <laughs> You're. I'm not even in the room anymore. You're just humping a pillow. That's weird. It was like that BoJack. Have you watched? Have you watched BoJack Horseman at all on I, Netflix? Yes. That that great joke where he's like he's watching his own reruns as he's having sex, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, is it good for you?" And she's like, "In the next room." It's she's like, "What?" One of George Costanza eating a sandwich with during sex, which to me sounds like a good idea, but right? now it's been proven it's generally looked down upon. I guess you're not supposed to do that. Whatever. Well, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers. We call the letter. You've got mail. 
Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. I, I don't think you have the Frankenstein's monster mask quite... Oh, he's not wearing one. I am sorry, Twergo. My mistake. He's just mutated and horrible, and you're a horrible person for calling him out on it. Yeah, pretty much. Our first question comes from John Bailey, who says, If you guys were forced to leave Austin for whatever reason, where would you move to and why? Is there uh, Austin 2? Austin 2. I think it's called Portland. That's pretty much the answer. I think most Austinites, their answer would probably be Portland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're like, it's Austin, but like maybe you know, 10 degree, 10 to 20 degrees colder on the whole. It's not sure. freezing, but you know, and, and from what I hear, the winters are surprisingly mild, but, uh, it's a lot like Austin. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I've considered moving there just for the change up. You get all the good things about Austin, but they're new good things. They're new good things. That's true. <laughs> Since Austin is full of hipsters, we want to get there before everyone else thinks it's cool. And I certainly have considered parts of California. Oh, yeah. California weather is just every time I go out there, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so fantastic. So nice. But then you meet people and you go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my answer would be Montreal. I would really like to live in Montreal. Too I, cold. I don't. Well, I'm from Indiana, where I'm I'm used to cold winters anyway. But it's just like I speak a little French, and that city is is like the Austin of the North. Like it's super laid back. There's a lot of cool stuff to do. Um, I really like the film scene there, uh, and they make the best dumplings I've had anywhere in my entire life. So yeah, I think Montreal would probably be the city I would live in if do I didn't know live a little French man. I do. He's sitting over there. Uh, Sacre bleu! Uh, I set you up. <laughs> Les jokes <are> so old. <laughs> oh, good times. Our second question comes from Justin Zarian, who asks, "What director would you like to see experiment with a new genre?" Well, you know, somebody actually did a short, funny film of this online, where it was sort of like a, a take on the Royal Tenenbaums, I believe, and a lot of Rushmore and stuff, where he, as if he did a horror movie, and I was like. I kind of want to see that movie. Wes Anderson do a horror film? Yeah. I was like, wow, with his typical quirkiness and weird characters and everything. I'm like, I would love to see that. On the other side, I'd like to see Christopher Nolan do a porno. Boom! <laughs> Boom! <laughs> wow. Yeah, once once you get really <laughs> incepted. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of like to see David Cronenberg do a romantic comedy. What? About a boy who falls in love with the, the the Stygian twin that like morphs off of his own body and becomes female, and then they have a meat cute or like a mitosis cute. So it's like got all the the staples of romantic comedy, except that it's got horrible David Cronenberg yeah. body heart. Except that he's literally fallen in love with a woman who like morphed off of some like tumor that was growing on the side of his body, hmm. and then like became a, a woman, and it's like he fell in love with it's her. It's like how to get head in a relationship without really trying. Exactly. <laughs> yes, there's your title right there. And you know what's funny? I would kind of like to see Woody Allen do a horror movie, because specifically because my favorite Woody Allen movies are the ones that are completely outside of type for him, or, or way outside his wheel. Like, Matchpoint, I thought was really great. Uh, Midnight Paris isn't way outside his wheelhouse, but it is a little bit different for him. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it would be interesting to see what Woody Allen would do with a horror film, kind of for the same reason as Wes Anderson, just because I would like to see some Woody Allen quirks, but I would like to see him earnestly try and do a legitimate horror film that is just something he's never done before. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't see him do it where it wasn't a horror comedy, mind you. Sure. No, I'm sure it would be. But, you know, Matchpoint wasn't really a comedy. No, but that's drama. He's done drama before. He's done several dramas in the past. So mm. that wasn't totally out of type. He just tends more towards comedy. I don't know. I think the the Hitchcockian nature of the of Matchpoint was was way outside his wheelhouse, and I thought he did a great job with it. So oh, I'd enough. like to see him kind of continue on with that. 
Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for your questions, guys. Really appreciate you sending those in. We're going to slam the lid shut in the letterbox, tuck it safely back under Chris's bed, which is a very dangerous place to be. Why has it got to be under my bed? Because I'm not keeping that shit in my house. You can have that and the Annabelle doll. But nope. it's always screaming at night. Yep. So it'll be right at home. Uh, so we're going to start with reviews. And, of course, everything we talk about will have an Amazon link on the page right below the recording. If you click on that link and get to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, as long as you got to Amazon via our link, anything you buy benefits the site. We really do appreciate that. Please keep doing it. Yes. Yes. Please. And we're going to start with the big release this week, which is, of course, Edge of Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat or All You Need Is Kill or The Fabulous... Ambersons, or wait, what? I don't know. It's got like forty different titles for fuck's sake. You know, it's not unusual for a film to be retitled even more than once by Hollywood. What is unusual is yeah, for after go. a theatrical release under one title to immediately put it under Blu-ray with an alternate title in huge type, and then in very small type hidden away in the corner is and the I, title it went with. I find that doubly hilarious that we're reviewing this the same week as an actual Asylum title because I kept thinking to myself like. This is an asylum version of Edge of Tomorrow. Well, like, yeah, if you if if I were the asylum and I was trying to make a movie to trick people into buying, thinking it was going to be Edge of Tomorrow, I would probably call it Live, Die, Repeat. Sure. So why why is the studio deciding that they're going to make it harder for people to find this movie on the shelves at Walmart and make it that much easier for the asylum to accidentally trick someone into whatever their terrible version of this movie well, is? Maybe that's their whole thing is they're just going to keep renaming it and, like, copyright them all till the asylum just can't come up with anything. Oh, that's that's possible too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's it's kind of uh, going to have to come up and do something lame like insert one quarter for extra play or something. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, whatever you call this movie, a movie by any other name, uh, this movie by any other name is actually quite good. This is a uh, a science fiction film that came out this summer where Tom Cruise plays a uh, a military, I believe he's a sergeant. Uh, kind of a mid-level guy in the military in the future where, oh shit, we've been attacked by aliens called Mimics, and we are rapidly losing the entire planet. He is uh, basically sent into the front by a, uh, a general who does not like him very much. Tom, See, the thing about Tom Cruise's character in this, which is actually kind of fun for me... He's a pencil pusher. He's a pencil pusher, and he's a spineless little shit. Yeah. Like, he's not, like... You know, Tom Cruise tends to play characters who are very noble, very heroic. Like, he, he is the movie star movie star. But in this movie, he is really playing a spineless little shit. And when he gets sent to the front line, he does everything to try to get out of it. And then he's sent into combat, and oh shit, he's killed. That sounds like a spoiler, except that he wakes up again at the beginning of that day. And it's like, wait a minute, what happened? So he's sent back into battle, and it happens again, and he wakes up again. So you're starting to see the reason why this movie garnered a lot of comparisons to Groundhog Day. Right. It would have been funny if Bill Murray had had an appearance at some point. It's like, oh, my friend, have <laughs> fun. Learn the piano in some languages while you're at it. Yeah. Court <laughs> Andy McDowell, because that's what people did in the 90s. I'm fighting aliens. I don't have time for that shit. Oh, well, you're fucked then. Yeah, sorry about you. Yeah, you know, it's like he got caught in some sort of glitch thing with the aliens, so he's stuck in this repeat deal going going on he doesn't know what to do about it he's just trying to get out of there every time and like in groundhog's day there comes that point you realize this has just been going on and on and on and on till he's like mapped out in his head every single thing that's going to happen during this d-day basically versus the aliens knows exactly which way to turn which way to move and he forms sort of a relationship with emily blunt who plays this sort of iconic soldier uh for the resistance the humans uh, the Angel of Verdi, I believe as is what he they keeps call trying to, you know, save her during this final climactic battle, uh, and eventually 
opens up to her like of what is actually going on here with him and his deal and starts learning how to shorten as it goes on the time period it takes to make her believe him that this is what it is yeah so that they can just go and figure out how to get through this thing and win 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 yeah uh, of course the aliens being no slouches themselves start to become kind of hip to what's going on and it's a race to see who can get to the edge of tomorrow Groundhog Days of Thunder. Groundhog's Day Two. <laughs> there, there are a few things. Tom I, Cruise Boogaloo. Yeah, right. There are a few things I really did like about this movie. One of which is that it it has kind of a an interesting message about the nature of combat, where it's like you could train and train and train for your entire life, but there's so many variables and so many things you just can't account for in the heat of battle that the only way to really be the kind of badass warrior that you always see in movies who always comes out on top in battles and is, like, taking down the... Like, really the only way that's possible is if you know every single thing that's going to happen because you've done it before, which is kind of subtly what this movie's hinting at. And also, I really liked the design of the aliens themselves. Oh, yeah. They're scary as shit. And they move so fast. They're like, whatever that Transformer was in the first Transformers that, like, burrows under the sand... Like that mixed with one of those probe droids from the Matrix that are looking for the Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, they they kind of more than anything reminded me of those. Yeah. But, but different. It's not identical. It's no, just, no, no. That would seem like the primary influence there. Yeah, probably. And they, they move so quickly and they kill so like it nonchalantly that it, they are really terrifying. And I thought that was cool. The, the effects are really great here. The story moves super fast. It's got you on the edge of the seat. Even while you're like, you know what – all of the pieces of this recipe are. They're blindingly obvious what they are. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because they fit together so smoothly. I mean, it's Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of, like, movies. Like, chocolate and peanut butter are good on their own, but together they make something new that's even better. Yeah. This is, like, pretty fucking awesome in its own right. And it's super sad to me that it didn't make that much money in the theaters. People just didn't go out to see this film. That's and, weird. And I don't know if it's like exa event exhaustion, if it's Tom Cruise exhaustion, if it's I, – I, I suspect this is going to be used as more evidence by the studios why we don't want to make original films anymore. We just want to make sequels and remakes because the last Tom Cruise big sci-fi film, you know, Tom Cruise of anything you think can sell whatever to audiences, Oblivion didn't do well in the theaters either. I wonder if that's why they tried changing the title for the Blu-ray. Yeah, maybe so. It's just just a thought, but maybe that's maybe that was the they whole. Should have changed it to Groundhog's Day too. Yeah, <laughs> then they would have made a billion dollars. And it's crazy because the people who worked on this, like Doug Lyman, is a fantastic director. Oh, fantastic he's done so much good director. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, Christopher McQuarrie worked on the screenplay. Uh, you know, who just worked with Tom Cruise on Jack Reacher, right. which was great. And, you know, you've got a cruise that's uh, a cruise, a cast that has Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt, Brendan Gleeson, Bill Paxton. Yeah. Playing like a smart ass, uh, like army sergeant guy, which is like what he should be playing for his whole career. Pretty much. There's so. even one of the kids from attack the block in this. Like it's got a, an amazing cast. It's a great story. It's a lot of fun too. Like it's, it's hard sci-fi. Like it is really a, a conceptually like this whole uh, biological mutation that allows him to travel back in time only when he's killed to the beginning of the day, like, and and like you have to keep tracking how far along he is, and then and then the movie intentionally lets you lose track of how many times he's done this, and then you start getting context clues that he's done this hundreds of times, and then you start thinking about the toll that it would take on somebody to have been killed that many. Like it's hard sci-fi, but it's also a lot of fun. And despite the fact that you have a plot that structurally keeps going backwards, the movie keeps moving forwards. Yeah. So I I think it's a it's a tremendous feat, 
And I don't understand what people didn't like about it. Yeah, I mean, or why they wouldn't give it a chance. I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong; it looks like it made its money back and some, but not anywhere near the type of money you expect with a hundred and seventy-five million dollar budget investment. Yeah. You know, keep that in mind if you're worried about this looking chintzy or anything like that, or not getting your money's worth. They spent a hundred and seventy-five million dollars on it. You can see every penny on screen. This is a phenomenal, beautiful-looking film that is just incredibly slick. Uh, maybe, maybe part of the problem is people want the rougher edges these days because this film is slick to the point that there's just no crinkles showing at all in it. I mean, yeah. it feels like a stylized Hollywood product, just one done extremely, extremely well. Mm -hmm. Um, the Blu-ray comes with some extra features, 12 minutes of Storm in the Beach, Storm in the <laughs> which is, uh, takes a look at basically one of the, the big battle sequences is weapons of the future for eight minutes where they talk about all the various different special stuff that they got that they use to fight aliens with creatures not of this world for six minutes which takes a look at the aliens themselves and now I thought designed. that was going to be a documentary about Tom Cruise no no right it could have been he hasn't aged since 1988 people <laughs> I'm starting to see the wrinkles I'm starting to see him you're starting to see the wrinkles a little bit I can see creases here and there we can see more seams in Tom Cruise finally the mechanic and the effects uh, on the edge with Doug Lyman for 43 minutes was a production documentary uh, that that focuses on him specifically as a director, and then eight minutes of deleted scenes. Yeah, it's a good release all the way around, despite the fact that they did this ridiculous thing where they... I've literally never seen this before, where they changed the name of a movie from theatrical to Blu-ray. That's, that's very bizarre to me. And all of this just highlights the fact that it should have remained under its original title... All You Need Is Kill. That, I love that title. That's a fantastic title. Based on a Japanese light novel that was called that. And I was like, that's really cool. It makes you go, wait, what, for a second? Because you're like, that doesn't make grammatical sense. But it like, then you're like, well, yeah, but it sounds cool. It sounds cool. Fuck Here. it. Well, I don't know what I need. Here, have some kill. You know, that was all I needed. It sounds like something that would be like etched into a Marine's helmet. Like what they had done themselves. Exactly. So. Like I'm okay born to kill or yeah, what have you. Yeah, exactly. Full Metal Cruise. Uh, moving on from Edge of Tomorrow, we're going to talk about a movie that is currently high in the running for my pick for worst movie of the year, and that is A Million Ways to Die in the West. Yes, I know how much you hated this. I could s almost smell your discontent in the movie theater from a distance, but... Honestly, I didn't hate this movie. Well, first of all, I didn't see this in theaters. Oh, okay. Maybe I, it was someone else I was smelling their discontent. Maybe. There's a general cloud of discontent smell. There's some, some old people who go to these uh, press screenings. Maybe they had shit themselves. It just wafted over. It, it smells just, just like discontent. Well, here's the thing. I, I want to put this out in the open because this is not a situation of me just hating on Seth MacFarlane. I watch Family Guy regularly. I really liked Ted. And one of the things I really liked about Ted is I thought... Here's Seth MacFarlane getting a chance to do something fresh, to kind of find a new energy and take a new direction, and I'm really interested to see what he does next. What he did next was a comedy set in the Old West where he himself plays uh, Albert, the star of the movie. Yeah, let that sink in for a second. Uh, who has just been dumped by his fiance and is dealing with the fact that he lives in a very dangerous time. And then into town comes Charlize Theron, who happens to be... Uh, part of this Marauders gang led by Liam Neeson because it's a, he, you need a badass in the Old West, sure. Liam Neeson Seems sounds like awesome. a good choice, and we got a paycheck for him. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And it's really just about Seth MacFarlane trying to learn to not be so afraid of everything around him. That's the plot. Now, the problem I have with this movie is that it is the definition to me of a one-note joke. And that one note, again and again and again, is... Oh my God, the Old West sucks so hard. But the fact that Seth MacFarlane both created the movie and is in the movie 
gives it this angle of like, I really hate the old West, but knowing all of his previous work, it's, it's, and the fact that his character has so much hindsight, like he has so much awareness that things are going to be different later. It's basically a movie where Seth MacFarlane's like, Oh, can you believe how stupid the 1800s are? Oh, and it's like, dude, what are you, you're better than the 1800s. What do you want a cupcake? <laughs> like get over yourself. See, I don't, I, I'm a little baffled you're offended by that. I'm just like, this whole movie was so absurd. I was like, well, yeah, it's a episode of Family Guy where, where Seth is playing Brian. I mean, it's Brian who gets transported back to the Old West. And that would have made it work, I think. If it was actually a character that had been transported back in time, that might have worked a little bit better for me. But instead, it's a guy who's just going around hating everything in his own time with this bizarre foresight that it's only part of the zeitgeist now and it's going to change it was just a it was basically that's why i think it came off so smug is it's like you have a character living in this time who seems to know that he's better than everything that's going on in oh this it time. is smug i don't disagree with you there. smuggy smug 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 <laughs> um yeah as, as smug as he's mugging for the screen <laughs> smug and mugging <laughs> and and no question seth MacFarlane is not the greatest actor in the world he's not terrible he's better than he should be um he's a good looking guy that doesn't hurt but it's just – it's a little off-putting actually seeing him there after hearing his voice and so many things. Seeing him as an actor, I got to admit, kind of threw me for a loop a little bit sure. seeing him that much. Sure. Um, I, I, once again, I just don't have a problem with that out of – you know, the West thing, it, it made me laugh at first because you're like, how would you even know, dude, <laughs> you know, these things? But then the whole movie is absurd to an almost like David Zucker level of like absurdity of, you know, that, that it's impossible to ground this in any sort of reality whatsoever. The biggest problem is that the jokes are so uneven in here, where some of it I thought really does work. And I actually liked the out of time jokes. I thought that was one of the the funnier parts of the whole thing. A lot of it don't like there's a series of running jokes with Giovanni Rabisi and Sarah Silverman, two of his friends in the town that are just usually used for gross outs. Um, like Giovanni Rabisi is dating Silverman, who's a prostitute, and he thinks that they're going to get married. And and she's like keeps talking about all the other guys she's fucking on the side. And it's just not funny more than once. Yeah, it's, it's just really awkward because she won't sleep with him. Yeah. Because she's like, we're not married. And then she'll go upstairs and, and they, they go into graphic detail about things that she's doing with these other cowboys. And it's just like, that's just sad. Like, I just feel bad for Giovanni Rubisi. And I feel bad for the good actors in here who are forced to just be – there's too many straight men in this film. Amanda Seyfried, who is the ex-girl who dumps Seth MacFarlane at the beginning of the film, uh, is – just playing the kind of bitchy character that doesn't realize she's in a comedy. Yeah. Uh, Charlie's Theron is there to try and give the film some degree of heart, but that's all she does. She never gets a chance to be funny herself or be part of it. She's just a straight man to Seth MacFarlane's cynical humor. And then Liam Neeson, who just growls and walks around growling at things, who never gets a, doesn't really have a personality of his own. I was waiting for you to mention the fact you're like, there's too many straight men in this, and also Neil Patrick And Harris. also Neil Patrick Harris, <laughs> who's the new boyfriend of Amanda Seyfried, who who is pretty funny in this. They don't give him a lot to do, but when he is on screen, he's pretty funny. I, I got to admit, like, I know, like, on Family Guy and the other McFarlane shows, that's the referencing that is the thing that a lot of people who hate those shows hate so much. But in here, it was actually my favorite part of it. There's, there's, there's one, I think they only really make one. Yeah, they, they find a way to, to keep the references at bay, but they do figure out, wait a minute, there is something uh there is a geek property that exists in the old west that we could totally make a reference that to. That we have to bring in. And they totally and that that didn't that didn't bother me. At I, all. I like that quite a bit actually. But um 
Yeah, overall, this is just a just okay comedy. I thought there was stuff that's good here. Some people are going to like it more than others. Yeah, I can't bring myself to hate this at all, but in comparison to Ted, yeah, you would mop the floor with this. Yeah, you know? I wish you had a spittoon in your living room so that every time I mention the title of this film, I could spit into it. Uh, no, I... There was one I – will, I will give credit or credit to you. There's one joke in it that had me laughing out loud. Unfortunately, it was also the only joke that had me laughing at all. <laughs> uh, it was the, the – he comes into the cabin and his old crotchety father goes, you're late. And Seth MacFarlane goes, for what? And he goes, good point. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the old West. They're not doing anything. So uh, that, that was funny. You get on the DVD or Blu-ray uh, alternate opening and alternate ending, various deleted extended alternate scenes for about 11 minutes, a gag reel. Which I'm not sure how that's going to be any different than the movie itself. The gag reel actually I thought was funnier than the movie, except for the fact that there's multiple scenes where Seth MacFarlane's phone kept going off as they were trying to shoot. Okay, that's irritating. I'm like, motherfucker, turn your phone off. You're directing this fucking movie. What the hell's wrong with you? Uh, Once Upon a Time in a Different West, which is just an EPK type thing with behind-the-scenes footage and interviews. Commentary with Seth MacFarlane uh, and the co-writers, executive producers, Alex Olkin and Wesley Wilde, and then Charlie Theron. And then, of course, uh, this comes with an extended version of the film, which is shockingly... Like what? Like twenty minutes longer than the theatrical? Yeah. I'm not sure I want to watch a twenty minute longer version. I do not want to watch a two hour and fifteen minute version of A Million Ways to Die in the West, <laughs> or I will come up with a million ways to off myself. Once upon a time, and a million ways to die in the West. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna keep finding cuts of this for like the next forty years. This is the six hour cut of A Million Ways to Die in the West, uh-huh. in which they actually do outline a million ways to Look, die. We actually filmed enough footage to just make three seasons of a television show so we're just gonna put that out <laughs> <laughs> oh man this was more fun than watching the movie all right moving on from a million ways to die in the west we actually have a slate of documentaries to talk about we do not Sorry. just one <laughs> <laughs> these are these are good these are good documentaries i think you guys will enjoy uh the first is of course the blu-ray release of roger and me the first uh, if i'm not mistaken the first big uh documentary hit for michael moore it was the first documentary for for michael moore he actually uh was working in Flint, Michigan when all this was going down, with General Motors closing down all the, the late auto 80s. plants there in the late 80s. And he scraped his money together and, like, started calling everyone he could to try and film it. So this was like – he didn't even know he wanted to be a filmmaker until this was actually happening in this town. Yeah. Uh, and as such, this is the most honest of his documentaries, of a guy who is, you know, admitted as well. as like, look, I try and make documentaries entertaining and certainly – if, if nothing else you can say about Michael Moore is that he got audiences starting to – like major audiences starting to go, OK, well, maybe there are some documentaries that are fun to watch. And certainly there are others out there since. And he does but, he does deserve credit for getting conversations started oh, about yeah. some very important issues. Yeah, you're right though. In his later documentaries, there is some question as to the, to the validity and accuracy of some of the facts that he drops and, and so on and so forth. But you're right. In this movie, because it's so early in his career and because he's literally scraping together everything he has to make it, it feels much more honest. And he's intimately familiar with yes. the topic. He's you not know, an outsider. He is part of it. He is an insider. And everything in here is, in fact, pretty much true as he is just trying to interview everyone in Flint who's been hurt by this thing, about people who claim – who weren't, who had nothing to do with this at all, who were like, what? There's nothing wrong. I don't see what the problem is. It's yeah. corporations taking care of themselves. Yeah, rich people going, there's no problem. There's no unemployment problem in Flint, Michigan. It's like the town looks like a post-apocalyptic wasteland for fuck's sake. And then, of course, regularly trying to get an interview with the, uh, I believe it's the uh, GM chairman, uh, 
Roger B. Smith. Yeah. You know, him, the, the, that's kind of the working like thing that goes throughout this is he keeps trying to get a chance to go in and interview this guy and, and keeps being shot and down. And he's not like, and I know Michael Moore has this, uh, style of like sh- showing up ambush style and putting cameras in people's faces. But for this, he did write, he did fax, he did call, he tried to set up an interview the legitimate way and they were just ignored. And then he kept getting told when he would go into the lobby and then get rushed out. Like, if you want to, an interview, you got to make an appointment. He's like, I've been trying to make an appointment for a year. Nobody's gotten back to me. But in case you don't know the situation, in the late 1980s, Roger B. Smith, who was the chairman of, uh, of General Motors, decided to close all of these plants. Now, Flint, Michigan is a town that exists because of the, the automotive plants. It was a town that basically sprung up around the automotive plant for all the workers. And when those, he decided that he was going to close, close these factories and move them to Mexico because it was cheaper. I mean, the richest company, one of the richest companies in the world, GM, decides it's going to screw over 30,000 people because it wants to make like a half a cent more profit. Like it is ridiculously like underhanded and, and just really like you can talk about like the, the nature of capitalism and corporations taking care of themselves, but it's just a dick bag decision. Yeah. Like all the way around. There was no the profit to be made was not such that they weren't already making profit. Uh, but anyway, so it's really about what happened. That town falls apart in the wake of, of these ta- of these and uh, the related lives clothing. of the people there. Yes. I mean, pets are meat. Yeah, oh, the woman who's selling rabbits with a sign that says "pets or meat" is one of the more disturbing scenes of the film. I will say this: this movie should come with its own suicide note. Uh, uh, it is depressing as all hell because the thing about Flint, Michigan, really hasn't rebounded from this. To this day, is still kind of oh, it's apocalypse zone. Yeah. Um, the funniest part of this whole movie to me, though, is where they're trying to make the point that crime rate, despite what some people are saying, crime rates are through the roof, and. Uh, uh, ABC's Nightline shows up to do a live report on conditions there, but they don't show it because their truck is stolen. <laughs> yes, as they're trying to do, as everyone who's in the upper management is denying that anything's wrong in Flint, Ted Koppel shows up to do Nightline and they can't even broadcast it because somebody yeah. in Flint steals the truck, steals, steals the, the Nightline truck as they're recording. Um, yeah, you know, there's something to be said, of course, like for the opposite argument of saying, like, look, there, there are no laws preventing these guys from doing this. And shouldn't corporations be able to pursue money like any other company where the best deals are? And you're like, of course, to an extent, but it's like anything else. It's like the reason we have the Environmental Protection Agency. It's like if you're really causing serious damage by your actions, then there needs to be some level of government involvement. And, and I definitely think if they're going to come back years later and ask for bailouts, which is exactly what yeah. they fucking did – then yeah, they should be like there should be some kind of regulation on that. Like if you're gonna come back years later and go, oh, we need money because we fucked up. It's like sorry, like fuck you. Like if you're really gonna be one of those dog eat dog natural selection capitalists, then don't come to the government when you fuck up and ask for a bailout. So just as a message to all you libertarians out there, um, what are the good examples of societies that were run by corporations being allowed to do anything they wanted with no controls whatsoever? Like when when did that happen and good things came out of it? I point you to the Umbrella Corporation, <laughs> uh, to Omni Consumer to, Products. I point you to the Industrial Revolution in America and what happened there, the level of poverty and, and pain and hospitalizations and underage children working. Oh, you meant like in the real world. I mean yeah. in the real world. I don't live there. Where uh, – 
I'm sorry, the idea, this naive idea that corporations will do the right thing. (laughs) That is part of the talking points of libertarianism. I'm like, no, they won't. They never have. They They never never will. will. That's why the government is involved. (laughs) And it's crazy, too. What the documentary really highlights and what was eye-opening for me is not just what it did to these workers, but how it, like, irrevertibly fucked Flint for the next several years. Like, they could not get anything going. Destroyed the town. They, former, re- it's, it's practically like one of those old Wild West towns, you see, where the gold ran out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. It's a, a, but in the modern age, and that's like, that's fucked up. And it's like, you, you have like all of these projects that we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna spend millions of dollars on this, and we're gonna build a, a theme park, an indoor theme park called Auto World, and then six months it closed. Oh, we're gonna build a, a Hyatt. It's this really upscale hotel, and it's amazing. And people are gonna, uh, it went bankrupt. Like everything they tried to do that had nothing to do even with GM. Yeah. Was was a complete bust from yeah, that point forward. They're trying to sell it as like a tourist town. And why? Why would anyone go to Flint, Michigan for tourism? You can't create that out of nothing. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so this Blu-ray comes with a brand new commentary with, with Michael Moore where he actually is kind of talking about it in the sense of retrospect of the rest of his career and saying, yeah, this is, you know, where I started from. And obviously I'm a little bit more uh, – hyperbolic these days yeah but this one is still that that very intimate very close to his heart film that is uh, you know easily i would say his best out of all his films still just with the sheer honesty of the whole thing i would agree with that what what does kind of baffle me is i'm not sure why this movie needs to be on blu-ray yeah well they put out everything on blu-ray for an extra but you know what i mean like it was it was shot basically on like videotapes as they're running around and it's like there's not i don't think there's going to be a huge quality boost from your dvd that you currently own to this Blu-ray because, frankly, it would be uh, an effort and futility to try and, like, clean up this, like, run-and-gun documentary footage from the late 80s. And it's like, a 4K restoration from the original 16-millimeter uh, ne- negative, too, so. That's weird to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and it, another thing about this documentary, too, is you might think, I don't live in Michigan. It's not the 80s. It's still very relevant because a lot of the economic problems that are facing the people in Flint in this documentary are, are at the root of the problems still facing our economy today. Very so. true. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about a documentary that I don't think Chris got a chance to see, but I, did I not. thoroughly enjoyed, and Chris, I really think you would as well. It's called Superman, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Now, this is a, a documentary that was actually produced by Mike, uh, Mike Myers uh, about a guy who is one of the preeminent rock managers in the industry, and it's it played at South By this year. I didn't get a chance to see it, uh, but yeah, Shep Gordon is a guy who managed acts like Alice Cooper uh, and a lot of R&B singers like Luther Vandross, like uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, all of these big acts. And then he's also somebody who, during the course of his career, created the entire concept of the celebrity chef. And it's it sounds really weird, but he was a guy who, when he was coming up and meeting, uh, he met a, a French chef and realized that even though this chef's books were making all this money and like people he was you know working in the finest restaurants in the world he was getting paid next to nothing so he completely changed the structure of how that works for like even wolfgang putt calls him uh over to his restaurant spago and is like look i'm making almost no money here how do like how do we like we need representation and so like emerald uh wolfgang putt like all of these celebrity chefs owe their entire existence that concept the food network owes its entire existence to chef gordon because when they were creating the food network he went to them and said i will give you all of the best 
chefs in the world to be on your network for free. And the network was just overjoyed. Like, yes, absolutely. And the one condition was they got to sell whatever they wanted. So they all went into kind of merchandising and selling their own spices, selling their own right, cookware. Right. And it, it revolutionized that, like, that's why the Food Network exists is because of Chef Gordon. Now, a lot of this, is, as well as his career with rock musicians, too. Yes. Though, right? Yeah, I got off on a tangent about, about the chefs. But, yeah. Are you hungry, Brian? I'm a little, I'm a little hungry. But it's, it's crazy because he started out as a drug dealer for people like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, all people who ended up fine. Drugs didn't hurt <laughs> no, at all. No, no, no problem. Uh, and then the thing that happened was he was staying at this hotel in in L.A. before before these guys were all huge names. They were they were musicians. They were trying to make it. Uh, they were all living in this one hotel in L.A. Uh, it actually ended up being the hotel, unfortunately, where Janis Joplin died. Uh, but whenever the cops would show up, in order for him to for Shep to justify why he had enough money to live at this hotel, he would say. Oh, I'm the manager. That was like the cover, is I'm the manager of these bands. Ah. And he kind of accidentally fell into being an actual manager uh, with, with Alice Cooper. And he said that he even uh, he managed Pink Floyd for like 18 days. <laughs> and then they went their several ways. But it's like he revolutionized a lot of concepts. Like he came up with the idea of like the the no press is bad press in the 70s where it's like Alice Cooper. It's like we're going to do stuff. Literally, there's a story where he – Gets them to come out on stage wearing these smocks, these see-through smocks, so they're ostensibly naked. And then he calls the police to try and get them busted for indecent exposure <laughs> because he realizes that if it gets out, like, oh, parents don't want their kids to listen to these bands because of indecent exposure, the record will sell through the roof. Yeah. By the time the cops get there, the smocks have fogged up and they can't see anything. So the cops just leave, <laughs> and he says, literally, we couldn't get arrested in this town. <laughs> so it's really just about, like, oh, he has got some amazing amazing stories like i would have like if this documentary was just two hours of him telling stories i would have been captivated but on top of that they have some really big names uh they have people like michael douglas sylvester stallone uh you know people you know alice cooper himself obviously is in this just talking about all the various ways that shep gordon had helped them had been like he he's kind of just one of those guys who's in the inner sanctum he was who is Friends with everybody. All the biggest names you could possibly imagine have this guy in their cell phone contacts. Like, that's just – he's just – One of those he's, guys. He's just one of those guys. He's really good at what he does. He's a really genuine human being. Everybody loves him. And he's got, like I said, just some amazing, amazing stories to tell. And what I like about the documentary is it's edited in such a way where they actually use old – like, when, okay, like say they're talking about Jimi Hendrix. They will take stock footage of an interview with Jimi Hendrix and edit it so that if Shep's saying – yeah, and then Jimmy said, hey, man, why not go for it? They'll find footage of, of Jimi Hendrix saying something that looks like that, and then they'll take the audio out so it looks like when Shep is saying it, Jimi Hendrix is saying it too, Huh? which is a really interesting thing I've, I've not really seen in documentaries before where they literally manipulate uh, stock footage of the long-deceased person they're talking about to make it look like he's in the conversation. Hmm. It was really, really interesting, and I thought it was a really great documentary uh, a lot of fun, and the, like I said, it's what you're really paying for here is just a chance to hear these stories because they are phenomenal. And this is is this Mike Myers' first film as a director? I think it might be. I've never uh, I'm not familiar with him making any any films before this. I could be wrong. I don't yeah, think I don't know offhand if there there was anything or not, but I, I think this might be his first as a director. He's certainly written and produced lots of stuff. Yeah, but I I think he knocks it out of the park with this, and I think. Um, yeah, this is the first and only film he's ever directed. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, I, the reason that Mike Myers does it specifically is you might remember in the movie Wayne's World, 
where Wayne and Garth go backstage at the Alice Cooper concert. That's where he met Shep. And ever since then, like, he's just kind of been captivated by the guy. Huh. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a really fascinating documentary. And it's really great if you're, if you're a fan of the music industry. Uh, and not only that, but he ended up getting into movies as well and producing, like, uh, he had a company that produced movies like Kiss of the Spider Woman and, like, all of the, like, he produced a movie that got William Hurt a fucking Oscar. Like, the guy can do it all. There's nothing right. he can't do. And what's it's he crazy. doing now? He's, he's retired. He's just like, eh. I guess I would be too after that. Like, yeah. fuck it, man. I, d- I made my mark. Yeah. Mike Myers wants to make a documentary about me. Fuck it. He lives in Maui. He's yeah. a Buddhist. He doesn't, like, the only thing he still does is he still manages Alice Cooper because he said, Alice isn't a, cl- a client anymore. He's like a limb. He's like an extension of me. Like, I'm going to keep doing that, but yeah. Oh, Vincent. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Great documentary if you're a fan of music. Great documentary if you're a fan of stories about just really interesting people and the the tales that they have to tell. Indeed. All right. Well, that was Superman, The Legend of Shep Gordon. And from there, we're going to boldly go where no man has gone before. Oh, my. Oh, my. Which is should have kind of been the subtitle of this movie, To oh Be Takei. Um, to Be And decay. it's Takei, which rhymes with gay, not Takai, which rhymes with that other guy. <laughs> it's as they repeatedly remark on here. I mean, uh, uh, George Takei, of course, who, who played Sulu on Star Trek forever and ever. Yes, uh, has since become this internet sensation, has become a crusader for gay rights and all sorts of stuff. I mean, he really is a super interesting guy. And this is the first time I've ever seen to really get a look at what, who he is as a person. Yeah. And overall, this does a pretty good job of letting you know who he is. I mean, it's not completely a puff piece. There's, you get that side of him where, you know, him and his uh, husband, where Brad. they, Brad, where mm-hmm. they, you know, have these little spats and it becomes clear that like, George doesn't really have a filter for talking with people. Not at all. Ugh. Or Will Wheaton. Oh, yeah. He totally, like, he goes he just up calls to, him fat. He goes up to Will Wheaton, the first thing he said, you've put on weight. It's just like, <laughs> really? And Will's like, really? <laughs> Apparently that's not uncommon, because Brad's like, you do that to people a lot. <laughs> you do know that makes people uncomfortable, right? <laughs> uh, but he's just so funny. He just laughs after everything he says with that decay laugh. Yeah, he says, he'll say really serious things like, uh... And that's why our relationship has endured so much. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> like, are you what, what? Kid, Were you making a sarcastic remark? I'm not sure. <laughs> I still like the moments where he just calls out Shatner completely. You know, the taking from the roast where even I remember watching the William Shatner roast as it aired and going, "Man, Decay's not kidding about anything." Fuck you and the horse you rode in. <laughs> you know, remarking that not once in their career has he pronounced his name right. You know? <laughs> it's and then they, Decay, and, not Decay, as you've insisted upon calling me for the last 40 years. And then they interview Shatner in here, who, to his credit, is like, I don't even know that guy. Yeah. We worked together. We be- we never even had conversations. Why is he taking everything so personally? <laughs> well, yeah, there's apparently this big controversy about George Decay's wedding in which... Shatner was invited, opted not to come, and his reason – actually, I, I agreed with it. His reason was basically like, look, that's a very personal, yeah. like, you know, family-oriented thing, and I barely know the guy. I felt like it would be inappropriate for me to be there. 
And then apparently, though, at some point on YouTube said something about George not inviting him to the wedding, which George, like, flipped out about. So it's it's very high school. Like, it's okay. very silly. And thing. I will say this. George, in terms of, like, managing his public image, is a bit of a drama queen. Mm. I'm sorry. The term queen was not intended to have any sort of gay joke there. Pun I mean, actually uh, not intended. Actually not intended. He really is kind of. Like, anything he'll take and kind of blow up. And I've seen this happen with him. I'd never know how seriously to take a lot of his, like, problems with Shatner. Because Shatner always comes across as so calm and balanced on this. Like, I don't really – I don't see what the problem is. And and Decay's like, wah! <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, give it a rest already. Everybody knows Shatner's an egotist. Even Shatner admits he's an egotist. That's probably as far as this yeah. goes. And I, I was but, with you. I was afraid this movie was just going to be a, you know, PR piece yeah. for whatever Decay is working on right now. And it does talk about – a, a musical that he's put together. But what this movie's really about, it's it's a twofold movie. It's about him dealing with his past because his family was actually in one of the uh, internment camps that the American uh, government set up during World War II for Japanese Americans, which is a really, like, ugly side of our history. It's a really oh, embarrassing, yeah. uh, you know, mark on our history as, just as a country and as human beings. And then it's also about, obviously, when he made the decision to come out and his uh, work for gay rights. And so, I mean, it's... He's as a human being, as a person. There's a lot about George Takei that is very fascinating, and there's a lot about him that is is very altruistic and very moving, very uplifting. Uh, and then, of course, he also talks about his acting career, and there's there's plenty of humor involved, uh, just in the things that he says and people that he meets on the on the like Comic Con circuits and stuff like that. But it's it's not it's not just something that's a uh, a publicity piece for George Takei. It's actually. No. Really interesting. It's much better than the recent direct-to-DVD William Shatner stuff that's been coming out, to oh be fair, God. which is nothing but the most bland puff pieces. You know, like, I mean, the last one, I don't remember what it was called anymore. It was just so bad. The Captains? No, was no, that... no, no, no. There was, there's been oh, like three or four since The Captains. Get a Life like was the yeah. most recent one. I, like, come on, man. This is just barely thought out garbage is practically an infomercial whereas this to be decay is not that it actually is pretty interesting george is an interesting guy um he obviously has multiple sides to his personality but i i it does make a lot of focus uh, like on the part of him his personality that comes from growing up being put in those japanese american internment camps and in fact the musical that they had just performed and won a bunch of awards apparently broke all san diego box office records for whatever that's worth i'm not sure what the theater yeah, scene know. is like but broke all box office records for theater in san diego when it came out is about a musical about the japanese being put in these camps and now they're negotiating to bring it to broadway so mm -hmm. i mean hey got great reviews i mean good for him that's yeah. always nice to hear a career going to the next level there's an inter interesting interview with uh uh the act uh william koenig who played Chekhov at one point in here who's like i just figured he was like me he's like well i have my thing so i'm just gonna relax and i was like no decay's like fuck that i'm just getting started <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and, and when you think about it of all of the the star trek cast members like I think Leonard Nimoy might be the only person you could argue has had a better post-Star Trek career than George Takei. And that's, well, that's... other than Shatner, of course. Well, Shatner's had, like, been in show after show after show. Yeah, and Boston Legal is, was great, but at the very beginning of this movie, there's a billboard for Shit My Dad Says, which tells oh, yeah. you how long ago they were shooting this documentary. And that was, in fact, a bomb. Because that bombed like a motherfucker. That atomic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but, and you got sheer amount of things he's done. Shatner still's got to win on Yeah, that I guess that's true. Career. 
Um, but either way, this is actually pretty interesting for it, it, it. The Trek part of it is such a tiny part of this documentary. So if you're worried about seeing this, cause you don't want to see a whole documentary about his involvement with Star Trek, that's like barely any of this. Yeah. Uh, it's about the man and he is a pretty interesting guy. Absolutely. Oh my. <laughs> To B to K. Uh, we're going to move on from documentaries and move into our TV segment. And I believe, to kick us off, we have a, a special review of Arrow Season 2 with Chris and Martin. I'm afraid I had to get away from Brian for a second because I've got to review something that I know he hasn't seen. But I'm damn sure Martin Thomas has seen. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't be so damn sure. Well, I'm damn sure because you were the one who forced me to go back and give it a second chance. <laughs> and we're talking about the television show on the CW, Arrow. Arrow, In this yes. case, the second season, which has come out on Blu-ray. Unfortunately, it's a little late because literally they were like, crap, we totally – on our list we sent it to you, but I guess we didn't. So let me send it Ooh. to you now. Ooh. So I got it like several weeks after it came out. Okay. And it takes it took at least several more days to watch the sure, whole thing. Sure, sure, sure. it's not one of those nine or 13 episode shows. That's right. We're so used to those. Yeah, Aren't I know. those great? And then you get the one that you're like, oh, I'm excited. Oh, shit, I forgot. This is like 24 episodes. Fuck. And <laughs> so did you get them all watched before the I, third season just started? I, I did. In fact, I, I admit that despite the amount of – uh like shenanigans I called on the first season, which I watched the whole first half of the first season and went, this is just another CW show. Yeah. It's just not very good. Yeah. And gave up on it. I liked this so much that as soon as I was done with the second season, I, I went and you, you went back and watched, I the, watched first the first season. Uh, no, no, no. I the, watched the, the first episode of the third season. Oh, you like, did. I was okay. like, what happens next? Yeah. And you know, this is all acknowledging that arrow is not what you would call like, a high level of intellectual television by any stretch no, of the imagination. No, not by any stretch. But what it is doing is kind of accurately representing what comic books felt like in the 70s and 80s in some ways. And the way that everything moves super fast and everybody is actually going to turn out to be a hero or a villain. Uh, <laughs> you know, and the, the, everybody gets their chance. <laughs> I mean, it's like they kind of uh, – they abandoned the early on sort of like – uh, emotional heavy handedness yes. with all the relationship shit, which was so boring. Who gives a fuck? And changed it over for what comic books are like, which is like heavy handed superhero stuff. Well, and that's the thing with that first season. It was, it was so much a CW show and you go like, Oh, like Smallville. It's like, no, more like just the CW dramas that had the superhero ness in it. Yeah. And not, not well done on either front. Just, just overly dramatic. Like you said, like you want to go, Oh, Margaret, get over yourself. No, every time he'd go like, I have to protect this city. Uh, you failed this city. I was like, guy, get, enough calm already. Calm, calm down. The You're weird, not Batman. The weird thing about the second season is it seems like, or even halfway through, like, a, you know, the last third of the first season, it seems like it started to become self-aware of the mistakes it was making. Yeah. And actively trying to correct these things. Like, first off, having it where Arrow was, like, you know, just killing these guys. It was like, oh, oh, I guess it was always the plan to make that where he is indeed marked at that point by his own failure, you know, by being a killer and by deciding, deciding not to be a killer, he still has to deal with the fact that he used to be, which is a lot of what the second season kind of focuses on. I suppose it does. I mean, especially when it comes out of the gate. But I was just kind of happy because it bothered me so much in the first season, like from the very first episode. It's like, wait, you got Green Arrow, the hero, killing people? Yeah. And he kills the henchmen. It, it would kill me how he would just pick off henchmen. But like the boss, he'd go like, 
all right, I'm giving you one more chance. <laughs> it's like, but those guys are just, they're working for minimum wage, yeah. dude. Come on. It's like, oh, is it because you're rich and they're rich and you feel a brotherhood? What's going on with that? Uh, also, a lot of the side characters were just too irritating. Too, there were too many non-superhuman side characters, yeah. of which they at least partially solved by killing one of them <laughs> True. at the end of the first season. Well, it was really kind of like, why is he even here? True, true. And, it, and so much of the... We can't decide where we want to go with this character. Right. There was there was way too much of that going on. A little, a little bit of that leaks into the second season. But also a big problem I, that got fixed was with the first season, the villains were either rich guys who were assholes or it was D-list villains. Right. Who they only sort of pulled off well. Like, they were all forgettable to me. And the flashbacks to the island were largely... Just flashbacks. Yeah. It didn't feel terribly connected to the plot. Right. In this season, not only do you have your main villain being a major DC villain. Oh, Death, yeah. Deathstroke, who yeah. is an awesome character. They do him right. They do. Here. They make him honestly frightening as hell. Uh-huh. And the flashbacks present a different perspective on when he didn't used to be that way and he and Arrow used to be buddies. And as you're watching that story tell out through the go out through the season, it actually is providing valuable information on helping the, the other story progress. Well, it, it, it pulls you along because you see him, okay, in the present day where he hates Arrow and he's all, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to bring you down. The flashbacks, they're friends. So that you're constantly like, what, what happened? happened? Yeah. <laughs> and even at the first reveal of what had happened, you're like, oh, dude, come on. It can't be that. There's a second reveal where you go like, okay, I... I get it now. Very true. Uh, the only thing that really, really kept sticking out for me this season in the same way it did in the first was uh, Laurel Lance. Exactly. Who is still I, I knew it. wildly annoying. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I'm not saying she's, like, a terrible actress. I think she's just unnecessary to the story. Yeah, unnecessary because they couldn't figure, like, they originally it was like, oh, she's Laurel Lance. Well, she's Laurel Dinah Lance. Wink, wink, Black Canary. Oh, right. wait. We actually have a Black Canary now. Right. And the big, you know, like this is a little bit, I'm going to give a spoiler, so tune out if you don't want to know. Uh, or the sister who, like the whole thing, Ollie Queen, like when he originally went off on the boat was like, you know, he's dating Laurel, but then he took his her little sister on the boat to fuck her and she died on the voyage. Yeah. Well, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> she ain't dead and, in fact, has been trained by the League of Assassins under Ra- Raza Ghul's, I guess, other daughter? Right. No, Yadma, another daughter. Eh, you know, they're, 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 they're playing it fast and loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who she's having a lesbian – who she had a lesbian affair with, uh-huh. too. So, you know, hot. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she's come back to town and she's the Black Canary. Yeah. Now, of course, the, if you go all the way, if you start watching the new season, the very first episode of the, the – I don't know if you want to reveal that. going to like – pose a lot of interesting questions on the whole name switch up and everything else going on, but I don't want to say yeah, anything yeah, don't, don't, don't. But I will say I love the fact that we did, in fact, have the Black Canary. Yes, and she was character. a good Black Canary. And, you know, I mean, God... They, this, they, they worked out a way for the Sonic Scream. I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah, well, that's the neat, neat thing about the way they do some of the, like power related stuff mm-hmm. in arrow is that they find like a sort of a, at least scientific sounding yeah like reason right. why that would be a thing <laughs> you know sure it's not actual science but it seems more plausible than she's got this ability to do a sonic scream right but yeah with, with that happening laurel became superfluous yeah. didn't know what to do with her gave her a, a drinking problem for a while yeah she uh, for some reason like for like the like you just want to go what are you an idiot when she decides that oh it's ollie's fault 
fault that her boyfriend died, despite there's no <laughs> right way anybody would put those two things together right. at all. Well, the arrow was there and he didn't save him. Yeah. Ergo, he killed it's him. Like your, your dad was there too and he didn't save him. So maybe it was a big conspiracy of him, the fireman, the policeman, they the, all, the building constructor. They all plotted together to kill your boyfriend. No, it's it's really irritating. And it is. I was relieved at the very least that they finally uh, re- reveal Arrow's identity. Because she's like the only character on the whole I know. show who I know. doesn't know Oliver <laughs> North is Arrow. Like the older, even when the mom finds out, she's like, oh, fuck you. I knew. <laughs> well, that, that puts us back to the other annoying character. Yeah. Which is his sister. Who talk like this all the time. But who is not in the season that much, Thankfully, yeah. She really takes a back. She's only there to give the other interesting character here, which is the Red Arrow. Right, Roy. Roy, who's introduced in the show, like a reason to want to not lose his goddamn mind. Because uh-huh. Roy comes in as sort of a fanboy for the Arrow. I want to do that, too. I want to help the city. <laughs> but then he gets injected with the same drug that makes Deathstroke. Miracle, into, they like, call it. Yeah, into this super, super strong strong, super healing, fast guy, but also makes you crazy and not be able to control your aggression. It's funny because in comics, Miracle is what uh, uh, the Hour Man takes mm-hmm. to get his power. Oh. But but they treat Miracle like it's the Lazarus Pit. Right. Yeah, they do. Where, where you get that super strength, but you're also a little crazed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't a know. psychotic. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I wondered if the whole thing is going to be, because he's so... He can't control it, and he's spiraling downhill. And I'm wondering if that's their way of going. Oh, this is Roy when he gets addicted to heroin. We didn't you know want what? To tell yeah, I story, I'd never so. really thought about that, but I guess you're right because they won't do him getting addicted to heroin. I mean, this is like him hitting rock bottom story, and and Green Arrow pulling him back out of it. Right, but it's him doing it before he becomes Red Arrow. If anything, with him, I was just like. Ugh. We know you're going to be Red Arrow. It's Roy Harper, <laughs> goddammit. Can we just get to that already? Right, right. <laughs> but, but they do. They do. It's It, it pays off. So and I like him as a character. I do. I mean, it's it suffers from the same thing every CW fantasy show does where you have to suspend your disbelief often. Like, this is the guy they start off with saying, like, he cannot hit the side of a barn with an arrow. Yeah. And by the end of the season, he is full in costume, doing somersaults in the air while shooting multiple uh-huh. arrows. And you're like, this is like three months later. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, all you Olympic athletes who trained uh, in archery, uh, you're doing it wrong. I, Wait, what you guys need is a montage. Am I the only one who thinks that John Diggle is like sitting around going... So am I going to get a costume? I know. <laughs> it's like everyone here has a costume. You know, I was here first, right? Now, okay. Now, I missed the episode with the Suicide Squad. Oh, that was one of the best episodes of the whole That's That's whole what I hear. Show. I mean, I love that they're introducing those characters right, into right. this. There is an episode, Amanda Waller, who once again, you know, the government person who you can't do anything to because she's super secret, powerful government person. But... Uh, she's a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> and she organizes a suicide squad with bombs in the back of their heads, basically, that uh, Diggle and his ex-wife, who he's now bonding back with again, right. who's a top operative type chick, uh, they're sort of put out in charge of the Suicide Squad, not realizing when they go out that Amanda's got them all wired to explode if she, you know, <laughs> gets a wild hair up her ass. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just having Deadshot and uh, Bronze Tiger uh-huh. out there is really cool. I was a little sad that, like, Shrapnel, who's played by the actor uh, from Firefly, I'm forgetting his name right now, the guy who was, like, the, the doctor. 
mm. uh, the, the brother of a uh, uh, of the uh, Summer Glau, who is also in this season. Mm. <laughs> uh, that he's he plays shrapnel this minor dc character but literally he's there for like five minutes and it's like oh okay well he's not there anymore. yeah it's like well what, but that's- i well <laughs> from that i thought for sure like ah they're gonna do a spinoff and just have diggle go off with that and have his own thing there already has been talk of a suicide squad spinoff okay they, they apparently announced it before they even aired the episode that they are considering a suicide squad okay show, which i would love to see sure because i thought that that episode in particular functioned really well it was like this is much like assault on arkham it was a pleasant little oh yeah 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 inside the universe with following the villains so i, don't know, I thought that worked really well um yeah it's overall really good a return of a villain in a way that makes him more interesting than he was in the first season, I thought, of a the major villain from the first season. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although how he's back is anybody's guess. I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, how are you alive? Yeah, didn't we see cats eating his corpse at the end of the first season? Don't worry, <laughs> Don't too worry much about, it. about the particulars. <laughs> Look, I'm one of those actors that everybody loves, so, so they're going to bring me back. Well, the funny thing in comic book stuff like this is, like, it doesn't matter, because ultimately they can go later on, they go, okay, like in the third season... We'll figure out, oh, we're going to have a guy whose power it is to bring people back from the dead. Right. Now we know why he came back. Yeah. So, you know, but I actually like the way they brought him back in the story. And it might actually make uh, Thea an interesting character. It, it has the potential to do that. And uh, also uh, what it does, like, I don't know, his his coming back, what it, what it does. Gosh, don't want to reveal too much. Well, I, I, you know, I should I'm going to post up. spoiler spoiler discussion of this. So you say what you want to say. Okay. Well, what I would say is. Well, I, I spent so much of the season hating the mom character yeah. at the point when they come together and she's like, yes, I know who you are. And just when I was really digging her and liking where it was going, boom, they really actually killed her. Yeah. And my jaw was on the floor like, holy shit, you really did it. And it really was a pretty like, you know, I mean, I found myself getting a little teared up. I did it. too. I was like, damn, <laughs> yeah. that's some cold <laughs> shit, Destro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I guess you weren't kidding around. Yeah. Yeah, this is no casual, like, writing nasty messages on someone's Facebook wall. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wouldn't be a great villain, I guess, if that's all he did. You know, it's like, ah. I suppose so. I posted pictures of your girlfriend naked online. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you have a, a, a series that goes that many episodes, the cat and mouse game goes on for so long, you start to wonder, has this cat been declawed? Uh, Are we just playing around? And you're like, oh. I didn't know you could do that. Now, of course, it's also like sort of – I wouldn't go so far as to call it a, a backdoor pilot, but they introduce Barry Allen who oh, since right. has gotten his own show as The Flash in here. The only disappointment being I thought we were actually going to see The Flash in this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> well, you saw a flash yeah. of <laughs> right. what would be The Flash, yeah. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's – he's really young. I know. I've not actually watched the new Flash show oh, yet. Oh, you haven't? No, no, no. But I mean – It's okay. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. It's just that there's there is this cheesy cameo where, where the two of them meet up just to uh, like pass the like just just to let you know if you had any doubt that if these are in the same universe, yeah, there is a point where it makes no sense. But he says, "I'm gonna go visit Ollie," and Ollie <laughs> says, "Hey kid, you're doing great work. Get out there. See you later." <laughs> yeah, and they look at each other from afar and go, "Wow, that guy's cool. Wow, that guy's cool." I think Ollie would be like, you got any more of that formula? Like, right. That, that could be useful. I could really use that. How did that work? Exactly. Or why don't you stick around in my city and help me out? <laughs> right. I'm like, going to take a vacation. Like, my city's way more corrupt than yours. <laughs> I would like to see at least 
you know, lip service paid to the existence of the other DC heroes. Like someone reference something's going on in Gotham or something sure. like that, you know. I think that would be neat. And I hope that's where they're going to end up going eventually. Although I do admit, I really like that they're taking these third tier characters and making them pretty cool inside the Arrow universe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that is that is the thing. I mean, that's what you do right is that you take characters that people are so-so about. Yeah. And then, you know, hey, free reign to just do something cool. If you do something cool, even if it's not canon, people will go like, hey, I'm okay with that. I mean, what they did with Green Arrow originally, I was just like, man, that's all kind of messed up and not right. But what they've done since, I'm like, okay. Yeah. I, I think it's okay. Like, and honestly, with this second season, I thought it started out okay. I was like, hey, the first season was just terrible, but this is okay. And somewhere in the midpoint, right about the same time that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. got good, right. Arrow got good. About at the same time. It's like they were having conversations or something. I yeah. Don't know. Like, they not, just said, like, guys, we gotta I, step it I up. I just wasn't used to Guggenheim and Berlanti doing anything Anything. No. <laughs> so I really did not expect it was gonna get better. And, and like I said, keep in mind, this is not like, we're not talking Fargo or no. True Detective no. or good. No, no, we're no, talking no, no, no. silly comic book yes. television series. Yes, good. if you just want a comic book TV series. I mean, to the point where, like, I'm now referring to it as my stories. <laughs> it <laughs> I is. Got, I gotta go watch my stories. <laughs> it is. It is so like that. It's the way you might fall into a soap opera. You, you, yeah, sure. Intellectually, you hate soap operas. Sure. But if you if you were laid up on a couch and watched one for and, three days, and it was in a good hooked. period. Yes. Know? I mean, sometimes they're. Oh yeah, sometimes they're just abysmal. Probably more than not, they're abysmal. But they, <laughs> like anything else, sometimes they get that magic potion right. And, <laughs> right. And, you know, this feels like they've got the formula right for this level of silliness and it's just continually pretty much fun throughout. Yeah, it is. Um, now, of course, this being the Blu-ray edition of it, which is unnecessarily huge. Okay. Hollywood, please. We don't need you to double package DVDs in with the Blu-rays anymore. Oh. I know it lets you shoot up the price or whatever, but this thing is unwieldy. Oh, really? It's like you open it up and it's one of those thin plastic spindles with a flip disc yeah. that always break oh, yeah. after like, even with two discs, they'll break after like the second time you open them. This has got some like 14 discs in the damn thing. When I first opened it, I was like, fuck, how many episodes are there? Jesus. <laughs> but half, of, only half of it is Blu-ray. Well, you, st you still got those people who are just like, Blu-ray, I don't know about that. Yeah, well, then sell them the separate DVD set. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Anyway, in terms of extras, there's From Vigilante to Hero, which is about 24 minutes long, which looks at the whole evolution of him as a character from season Ollie, from season one to season two. Uh, there's 11 minutes on the visual effects of Arrow that take a look at, you know, how, the, well, I, I guess you can figure out what that's it, that is. Sure. Uh, wire work, the impossible moves of Arrow for 10 minutes. There's uh, deleted scenes that are, of course, I hate when they do this. They're spread across all the discs. Yeah. It's like, just put them all at the fucking end, man. <laughs> Give me one bonus disc. There's a 26 minute uh, Comic-Con panel. Or you get, you know, I mean, those things are usually pretty fun. Uh, and then five minute gag reel, which is, is pretty funny. Is it? Yeah. Cause, cause gag reels just annoy me. It depends on the gag reel. Oh. Uh, honestly, like, and I, I'll talk about this later in the same show, but, uh, Sharknado 2 had the funniest gag reel I've seen oh, as really? long as I can remember. I was okay. like, I can't believe this Sharknado 2 is the movie that had a superior gag reel. Oh, how funny. But they actually put effort in, into it and knew how uh -huh. to do one. Uh, but no, I mean, it, it's, the guy who plays Oliver Queen is obviously the biggest ham on the entire thing. You know, he's just constantly making goofy faces and everything. Okay. A point where I would imagine that people get irritated with him sometimes. <laughs> but one thing I learned from it, because, all right, so you see Black Canary, uh, 
do that weird pull up thing they do. Is yeah, or Mary when does. he does it, I with was a, like, God damn it! Well, I like to show and not that's impressive with a metal bar. And I was like, I was convinced that can't be real, right? They're not really doing that. Well, they show her like there's multiple takes of her doing it and fucking it up. So it is real. Oh yeah, they are actually doing. That. Yeah, <laughs> that's, like, what, that's what I figured. Whoa. I mean, there was a, I guess on the first episode, there's uh, there's the whoever you know Roy uh, doing something similar where I'm like. That's why I work. I can tell. Right. But with those two doing it, I'm like, no, that looks real to me. Yeah, it, it was real. I can tell you from the blooper reel, it was real. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that is Arrow season two. Like it has gotten so much better now and a large part to the addition of Deathstroke and that storyline. Mm -hmm. Let's hope next season storyline, which really. <laughs> All right. So. And the intro things when they do the previously on Arrow thing, they always go, I spent five years on that hellish island. And now it's like, shit, the whole flashback format's working. we got to find a way to keep I know, that. I know. It's like, <laughs> so the intro is lying? Because clearly he didn't spend anywhere near five years on that hellish island. <laughs> it's like, I spent a couple months on that hellish island and then a bunch of time jet setting about the world in other hellish places. <laughs> I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> I wonder if they'll go back on the old DVDs and change it. <laughs> right? And just go back. We never said that. You can't prove that we said that. So thank you, Martin, for joining us for that uh, very spoilerific review. Please remember, Brian, to write something about that on the text for this. Got it. <laughs> when Making it posts, a mental note. It's a full-on review in the sense of, like, we are going through point by point what happened in that season pretty much. Shot through the heart, Martin's to blame. Ah, it was probably me. <laughs> it was probably Chris. I was like, fuck it. I want to talk about this shit. <laughs> but that's not the only TV series season we have to talk about. No, changing channels a bit. We're going to move on to Adventure Time Season 4, Algebraic. I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, as you know, Adventure Time is, is a favorite animated show of both Chris and I. Uh, it is a very weird show uh, that takes place in this mythical land and features Finn the Human and his dog pal Jake as they go on adventures and uh, try to win the heart of Princess Bubblegum and take on the Ice King. and Okay, so season four basically starts after Finn has just had his heart broken. And uh, the first thing that happens in the show is that Jake tries to set him up with a new princess. Uh, the fire there's, there's princesses all over this goddamn land. Yeah, there's record. Lumpy Space Princess, Hot Dog Princess, Princess Bubblegum. You can't throw a rock without hitting Rock Princess. So. Rock Princess, yeah. Then there's Flame Princess, who is, uh, Jake tries to set him up with. And it doesn't go well. But, you know, here's what I want to say about the overall tone of Season 4. As the show has gone along... It seems like it like it is growing with its audience. Hmm. Like I think it realizes that, you know, 4 years ago like or actually they're in their 6th season. So I think they realized when this when this season was on the air that by this point, you know, it uh the people the kids who had started watching the show were 4 years older and they they're leading them through some some heavier subject matter. Like they're still Putting it, packaging it in yeah. this sort of Princess Pubic hair was like going a little bit too far. I thought, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but they they are dealing with some subjects that seem to um, have a little bit more meaning for slightly older uh, audiences, slightly uh, older, you know, like prepubescent uh, viewers. And it's a lot about love. It's a lot about uh, you know characters dealing with growing up. And uh, one of the episodes actually is about. Uh, Marceline, who's the, the, the vampire rocker chick that... Who's on the cover of this season. Yes, that Finn hangs out with. Her dad trying to get her to basically give up 
on her dream of just being a rock and roll badass and like take over the family business. And it leads to some really like nasty things happening in a realm called uh, the Nidosphere. And, you know, it's just like, I mean, what's the hurry? You're vampires. Seriously. You're like, dad's not getting any older. You're not getting any older. (laughs) (laughs) Let her have her dream for a while. Right. Uh, But yeah. So, I mean, so that's going on. And then there's an episode where, um, the, where Princess Bubblegum like creates a clone of herself, sort of, because she realizes she's not going to live forever. So she's like dealing with her own mortality, which is really oh, kind good of Lord. It's a singularity. Yeah, it's like it's really kind of like when you think about the subject matter, it's really dark and heavy. But they just package it with a lot of like weirdness and like Jake making jokes about his butt and like so it like at, at first you just don't notice anything, but when you really think about the subject matter, you're like, wow, this uh, this series is kind of growing up. It hides some stuff underneath the surface of what it's talking about. Yeah. It's a lot more important. Like the same way South Park does, but no, not the same way. The way that South Park chooses to deal with bigger issues under right. a veneer of its silliness, this does too, just in a very different tone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, whereas South Park is dark and twisted and cynical, this is sort of light and airy and fluffy. Exactly. And to, on acid. Because if they're not taking heavy psychedelic drugs when they write this show, I will goddamn eat my hat. Yeah, no, there's definitely <laughs> Ward is a very sweet guy who has to be on a tremendous amount of drugs. <laughs> yeah, just has to. There's no other way you can write this stuff uh, without the influence of drugs. This would no. be like saying the Beatles weren't taking drugs when they made Sgt. Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be absolutely absurd. And yeah, there's uh, – I think one of my favorite episodes is with the Goliad who is the the weird cat-looking uh, but British accent-having – a clone of Princess Bubblegum who develops psychic powers, and then they clone Jake as another psychic to kind of lock them in a stalemate forever. And Jake has this line about like, "Oh, so I guess the uh, I can't remember bird something is the is like the clone <laughs> of of Jake." And he's like, "Oh," or uh, the clone of Finn, and he's like, "Oh, I guess that's like my son." And there's like this weird moment where he like feels like a protective dad, and it's just like, "What the fuck is going on?" But, you know, at the same time, there's it, it's very moving and, it you know, it is going to warm your heart and you are going to laugh at all of the ridiculous absurdity. Like the episode where the Ice King, like, cuts off pieces of every princess and, like, sews them together Dr. Frankenstein Franken, style. Franken-princess? Yes. Princess Frankenstein. And it's, like, really creepy but funny at the same time. So, yeah, I, I think the fourth season, if anything, the, the difference between it and the other seasons is as the seasons have gone along, it's gotten tonally a little bit darker, a little bit more mature – And yet at the same time, still packaging it in a way that, you know, little kids are going to think it's just silly, that casual observers is going to think it's too silly. But when you really sit down and give the show the credit that it deserves, it's it's really pretty fantastic the way they deal with these issues. Agreed. And I I think it's one of the the better shows for kids on TV right now. 26 episodes uh, that come with commentaries for the entire length of the thing, like five plus hours of audio commentary with, with the Pendleton Ward and a variety of guests who worked on it. And a 20 minute look called at the music of adventure time with, with, uh, Penn Ward and the creative director, writer, Pat McHale, storyboard artist, Jesse Monahan and Rebecca Sugar, uh, where they talk about, uh, it's called distant bands, talking about failed bands. The showrunners tried to jumpstart before adventure time came into being. Apparently Ward was in a boy band and that song is included. Oh, you gotta <laughs> love that. And you guys, if you've heard us talk about, um, you've heard us talk about this, this show in the past and the releases of this show in the past, we've talked about how the special features are not to be missed. This is no exception. I, one of the things I really love about the, the Blu-ray sets they put out is that the special features are almost as weird as the shit in the shows. So 
definitely take some time and and look through this stuff. But this is this is a really solid release. Yep. All right, moving on to more TV, we have Afterlife season two. This is just the uh, first of two uh, British shows that uh, British supernatural shows that I've been watching lately that most people don't even seem to be aware exists over here, but are both come super highly recommended. Uh, this is the second season and final season of afterlife. Um, this is where Andrew Lincoln from the walking dead came from. This was- I did not know he was British. Yeah. I had no idea that guy was British yeah, his, at all. His, uh, you know, sometimes we like to comment as like on people's accents. Oh, they're slipping. Never heard him slip. No. Not even once. He is very good at the redneck accent that my, he does. My initial reaction, because cognitively I couldn't process it, was, man, he does a really good British accent. <laughs> it's so weird on how the extras and the gag reels of those things, he always does it in a British accent. Maybe see, he's a I've big Monty watched. Python fan or something. <laughs> I guess I've never watched the uh, special features of The Walking Dead stuff. Uh, the idea here is that it follows a psychic or self-proclaimed psychic, Alison Mundy, played by Leslie Sharp, who's a regular on British television. I'm going to stop you there for a second. Everyone who's a psychic is self-proclaimed. It's, well, it's funny. No, I know it's, it's they put it that way and they describe it that way, but there's not like a royal order of psychic administrators <laughs> bestowing the title on people. Well, there are in things like Hellboy, probably, or something, <laughs> yeah. you know? Just, this is still fictional, so. That's true. <laughs> uh, but this is supposed to be the real world-ish and uh the idea, the reason I say, you know, self-proclaimed here is because part of the concept of the show is whether she is or she's just disturbed. Um And the, it's kind of got that X-Files feel of, like, you decide how much of this is real and how much of this is, like, just using detective skills to basically fit together what's happening. Um She gets involved with Andrew Lincoln who plays Dr. Robert Bridge who is the is the scully of the show basically <laughs> uh, and uh he is has an in, a skeptical interest in the paranormal uh basically because his wife um I'm sorry his son died not that long beforehand and he has that sort of draw to this because what if she really is a psychic and mm-hmm. she could communicate with them and she claims she can see him all the time around him you know what if that is real and then the still no i can't believe that's real and that makes for a fascinating you know banter but not even banter but like relationship between the two at the same time as she's being called out to go help people who are having problems with ghosts or having problems with whatever uh he goes with her and they sort of together sort out what's happening and help these people uh, the second season of this is one of the more tragic ways to end a show ever because it pretty much starts with us finding out that andrew lincoln's character has like incurable cancer and is going to die. So he die. starts making meth. And Allison losing her abilities. And you're like, well, where is this going to go from here? And yet the second season is arguably better than the first season with some generally creepy episodes, some genuinely moving episodes, really good stuff. And a finale that suffice it to say is they're not going to make an afterlife season three, yeah. or at least I don't know how they would. Well, I, I watched a little bit of this. I, I didn't have time, unfortunately to, to go through the whole show, but I think my favorite episode of the ones I saw was the one where the, the guy who was like a rat catcher. Yeah. And then yeah, that's one of the creepier ones. What the fuck, man? I was that's like, okay, that's messed up. That's pretty messed up. I like that. Uh, yeah. There's a, like I said, there's a lot of stuff on here that is really creepy like that. It doesn't always like work perfectly. It's uneven, but there's not a single episode of the show. That's bad. Everything at worst is uneven. And some of it is just goddamn brilliant. Um, 
yeah, like obviously you're going to want to pick up season one first because there's a lot of story threads, but really it's a complete story in two short British seasons. And especially if you like ghost creepy type stuff, I can't recommend this more. Well, it really is great. I don't know if it's just because I didn't go far enough into it, but I got to say I found this way more accessible jumping in at the second season than, than the other British shows because so, it had sort of a Monster of the Week format for the episodes sort of, yeah. that, that I watched. Uh, so I didn't feel I didn't feel lost. I think in the terms of uh, empathy for the characters, it's and their situation, it's important to watch the yeah. first season. No, it makes, and I'm not. Yeah, I, I obviously wouldn't fault the show. Like I couldn't just pick this up in the second <laughs> season and run with it. That's stupid. But it's just an observation. Fair uh, enough. Which leads us into, in fact, in the flesh season two, which is the other British supernatural. Sh- so it's funny. I guess all the horror we're going to be talking about this week is on TV. Yeah, we do, in fact, have three horror shows to talk about this week. So. <laughs> a little bit of horror, a little horror TV. What are you going to do? Small screen horror, a little TV horror, a little bit of, a little bit of screen. Horror? Big whoop. Want to fight about it? On the couch. <laughs> Your voice just keeps going. <laughs> That's as high as it can go. It's so going to be supersonic by the end of this episode. Uh, this is a, a BAFTA award-winning BBC Three supernatural drama series starring Luke Newberry as the protagonist. This is the second season. Hopefully, there is going to be a third season. They've certainly been talking loudly about it uh, because this is phenomenal, smart zombie television. And I do not mean this is like The Walking Dead. It is not. This is a scenario where we missed the apocalypse. It happened before the show started, the zombie apocalypse. Don't you hate it when you missed the and apocalypse? And science, you know, all those movies were like, they can't, you know, the, all the weak person's like, no, maybe we can cure them. And of course, you're like, oh, shut up, shoot those zombies in the head. Well, it turns out that person in this universe was right. You could cure them. There is, in fact, an injection they can regularly be given that will make them fully conscious, like fully aware, no desire to eat human beings. They're still, you know, pale. They've got funky looking eyes. They uh, uh, um, can't eat or drink or go to the bathroom or any of that stuff. I mean, they're in. They call them the uh, partially partially deceased syndrome Mm -hmm. sufferers, and they're being integrated back into the world into with everybody else. And it's not even a little bit subtle that this whole thing on some level is an allegory for homosexuality. I mean, it's not even a little bit subtle about that, no. but not so much as that you can't watch it outside of that because there's a, you know, it, there's a lot of particulars in here where you're like, well, wait, how does that fit in that metaphor? It doesn't. Don't worry about it. It's still a fun zom- zombie drama. Uh, and watching this main character who is the nice, you know, just this nice kid who wants to be, you know, just wants his life to be normal again with his family. Everything is just going crazy around him. He's got this, uh, his best friend, Amy Dyer, is joining this sort of revolutionary underground group of former zombies that are sort of saying, hey, we shouldn't have to cover up because society wants them all to wear makeup and contacts so they look more normal. In fact, they're passing around this drug that makes them temporarily turn full, full blown into zombies. Which again. they call rabid. They call rat, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. In generally, call rabbit. The drug is blue uh, oblivion, I believe, is what it's called, which I've taken and it's good. Um, <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> I've taken it all. Crave barbecue like crazy. Uh, his sister is a former member of the militia, the human volunteer force that were like heroes during the zombie apocalypse. So she's killed hundreds of zombies, and this is kind of freaked out. Her parents don't know what to make of this whole situation, and in this season. There's this brand new woman who's come into town and become part of the local government and is manipulating and forcing everything in the government to change this whole scenario. So the, the, 
the partially deceased sufferers have to go and work social work and do like, you know, jobs around town for free to earn their freedom, basically to become citizens again. Um, even though the documents are uncovered showing there's no intention of the government to ever give these guys back the freedom. They just want the free work until they figure out what to do with these people. See, and I think that's another reason why you can watch this show uh, outside of the, the subtext about gay rights, because really while that is in there and while there are uh, definitely references to that, it's really, the subtext is also really just about all people who have been uh, oppressed, all people who uh, suffer prejudice and, yeah. you know, and, and are, uh, or uh, what do you call it, profiled against, right. uh, which is really interesting. And, you know, it's one of those things that goes back all the way to Romero. Like, Romero's movies always had that subtext of who's worse, you know, the zombies outside eating people's flesh or the human beings inside who still retain their humanity, but is that even a worthwhile thing to say? Because very much. human beings are naturally kind of, ble- you know, it's it's a very nihilistic, you know, it's it, the it's, same thing happened dawn, night, and it's day. It's the zombie the ideal in a world where civilization didn't collapse. Right. You know, where civilization still stands, but we're still dealing with those same concepts and those same ideas. But they have a lot of scenes in this show that kind of beg that same question as to who's worse, like the the zombies that have, like, killed people eating their flesh or the human beings that are now, you know, being prejudiced against what are essentially just their human beings and again. murdering fully conscious people. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it, like this person is fully intelligent and aware of their whole life and everything that happens. And you're killing them because they formerly were mindless and were a zombie because their eyes are a different color than yours. Or yeah. their, their skin. T- it's like literally the color of their skin. Uh, pale is a color, right? Uh, and it starts developing in the second half of this with more sort of like, why, what does that mean? And little things that you're like, where is this going? There's a whole, plot that's building where there's this sort of master zombie guy who we just wears a mask who's kind of like directs the groups of people who are part of this liberation army who uh is telling people that a second rising is near and to get to it to make this happen you know where more of the undead will rise again and we'll all be free the original person who rose must be killed and it's starting to look like the original person who rose is in fact our lead character, who, which is unfortunate because he's just the nicest, most hapless little guy. You know? yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. why do the good things always happen to bad people, Brian? I don't know. It's it's kind of my my raison d'être. And there's a, a very funny uh, guess who's coming to dinner but not eating sequence in here. <laughs> and I don't know. I think the show manages to be funny. It manages to be sweet. Manages to be heartbreaking. It manages to be really violent and gross and even scary. I really like In the Flesh a lot. And boy, do I hope they get to a third se- series of this. And if you do like The Walking Dead, the one similarity it does share is that it's violent as fuck. Yeah, when they get to the violence, it does not fuck around. Yeah. True story. Well, that was In the Flesh Season 2, and now we're going to uh, check ourselves into the Bates Motel Season 2. This, of course, being the sort of prequel. I say sort of because this is, takes place in modern day. Yeah. Sort of sequel and prequel on A&E to Psycho, following Norma Bates as a, what, I think he's like 15 or 16, something like that. Norman Bates. Yeah. Uh, Norman Bates and his mother, Norma, prior to the events of that film, where they have, in the first season... They have just bought this hotel, the Bates Motel, and like, and an attempt to, you know, get on with their lives after some tragic stuff in their past in White Town Bay, Oregon, and White uh, Pine Bay. Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? White, White Town. Town. White Pine. Bay. Which don't get me wrong. You look at the 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 diversity of the town. You might yeah. call it White Town. White Bay, Town. There's not a lot of diversity no, in this town. No, no, no. <laughs> 
Uh, people, well, that's not true. Some people like one Grateful Dead album. Some people like another. Diversity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and this season has Norm, Norma very upset when she finds out they're building a bypass that's going to make basically make her motel like not – no one's going to go to it. It's not on the highway anymore. So it's like, oh my god, I just bought a money pit. Um Vera Farmiga wonderfully plays Norma Bates. I really think she's such a fine actress. And Freddie Highmore is doing a – is finding that perfect balance for Norman Bates that I didn't think that you could get for this. He's nervous. He's awkward. He's sweet as can be. Um and yet he has blackouts and kills people occasionally. <laughs> sure. Like yeah, we all do. Like we all do. Yeah. Sure. I mean, some of us, it doesn't happen until we take massive quantities of acid. But still, uh, this, of course, expands the universe significantly. He's got a brother played by Max Thoreau named Dylan. Um, this second season, you find out things like maybe Dylan was the product of an incestuous relationship and that incestuous father shows up to cause trouble. Um, it also has this weird whole thing with him. Like Max, Max Zero's story is a little bit on the, why is this in here other than to pad out the season, which is that there's this whole community is pretty much supported by pot money. Like there's two big families that grow tons of weed and sell it across the country here, mm-hmm. which is probably not entirely inaccurate of multiple counties in Oregon. Um, <laughs> and Max goes to work for one of them and there turns into this whole like drug war type thing between the two things when uh, the, the drug lord of one is killed by someone who is not from the other group. Let's just say the baits are involved. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Freddie's – we saw Freddie's teacher died, was murdered by someone in the last season and we're pretty sure she was seducing him at the time. So it kind of looks like Norman did it, but maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And this season is kind of him coming to terms with at the very least the fact that he goes into blackouts and doesn't remember what happens during them. It's also the first time we see him actually assume the identity of his mother when he goes into one oh, wow. of them, where he starts talking as if he was her. So it's building towards that. And that stuff really is interesting. The problem is there's just, it's padded out with so much other stuff that you're like, I don't care about this other stuff. It's kind of soap opery. It's kind of silly. There's a lot of, anytime like uh, Norman starts to get a girlfriend or whatever, she inevitably moves away for some reason. And I don't mean like, that's what the story is. They actually do find an excuse to have them leave the show. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm leaving. Um, huh. It's it's okay. It's well acted. It's just, I guess that this season kind of felt like it was beating around the bush a lot more than the first season did. Huh. It was like, you know what? This did not need to be as, at, you know, as long as it actually is so far. You really could have, you really could have made a mini series about this whole story. It feels like now, and it would have been really good, but trying to stretch it out into a whole continuously running show. I think we might be seeing, feeling, seeing the stretch marks and going, Ooh, because <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm just not sure anymore. Just a shame. Like I said, there's so much talent on here. Freddie Highmore is so good on this. Vera Farmiga is so good on this. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. I'll watch the next season, but honestly, if it doesn't start moving more aggressively towards the um, the finale, then I'm not sure I'm going to stay with it. So Hannibal and Base Motel have reached that point in the yellow wood, and their paths are now diverging to a point where Hannibal keeps getting better, and it sounds like Bates Motel is uh, mired in mediocrity. Well, Hannibal is like like from the get-go is trying to do something markedly different than both the original movies and anything else on television. I mean, whether you love it or hate it, it's really different, very visceral 
this is not trying to do something that different from what your standard TV stuff. Hmm. Um, it's just interesting in the context of what we know about uh, Norman Bates. Gotcha. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about a movie that, first of all, I never thought we would enjoy. <laughs> secondly, I know what movie you're talking about. Secondly, I never thought would ha- I would have to pause and give serious consideration to for pick of the week. Uh, for the record, Edge of Tomorrow is going to be my pick of the week, but <laughs> I had to think about it. I had to think about it because of Sharknado 2, the second one. I was really surprised I even got sent this because they didn't send me the first one. And I don't even think I asked for this one. I think, God, maybe they're just late. I let me know. let me stop you right there. Nobody asks for a Sharknado, Chris. <laughs> it just happens because of nature. <laughs> what were we saying when you were in the theater? Sharknado. It's the sequel to Sideways. <laughs> Chardonado. Yeah, um, Chardonado. Uh, you know, I heard kind of mediocre stuff about the first one, which is why I wasn't very interested in the second one. Despite all the press, all the media, I mean, I was the first to laugh out loud when I heard they were making a movie called Sharknado. I was like, okay, that's funny. And I even wrote a story about it on Spill. Or not wrote, I did something on the Daily Spill about it. And I was just like, and I kept bugging Corey about it because he hated the whole concept. And I kept going, aren't you excited? Sharknado is almost out. Just to fuck with him more than anything. But <laughs> I feel like I, I reaped a, a whirlwind there because um it was a huge success for them and people went out of their way to see it and yet i kept hearing yeah it's pretty much just another asylum film maybe a little better than most but not by a huge margin it's not that it's better it's that it's not a takeoff on something else well it's just finally found a way to be just self-aware enough to be entertaining Right. Because my problem with all of the Asylum Sci-Fi Channel movies that people like, oh, you like bad movies, why don't you like it? Well, the reason I don't like them is because most of the time they're just lazy. Yeah. Most of the time you have some half-assed, washed-up TV or movie star who doesn't want to move around very much, so they shamble to the end of some catwalk and then a horrible CG monster jumps out and it just... It looks like absolute garbage, but it's played so seriously that I'm like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? I can't just laugh at the fact that it's bad. That's not enough for me anymore. Exactly. Maybe the first couple times I saw someone doing something like that, but now it's like, I need you to be more clever than that. Yeah. I need you to be, if we're laughing at you being bad, I need you to actually put some effort into it more than just that. And the way they roll them out, I can tell you exactly how I know there's no effort being put in, because if they really wanted to put effort into their films, they wouldn't do a new one every two weeks. Yeah. They would take time and commit money to actually making maybe one good movie a year. And every once in a while, those type of movies can be fun. Big Ass Spider was a good movie, which is not The Asylum. It was actually theatrically released. It's actually a lot of fun, good times. And again, because it knows it's called Big Ass Spider. <laughs> yeah. Like, it knows exactly what it is. And it has a clever script. And it, ha- and it Exactly. That's the other thing, is there's care actually put into the script of it. Um, now, like, once again, did not see Sharknado. You say it's better than the general Asylum, but... It's, it's more entertaining than, you know, most of the stuff the Asylum or Sci-Fi Channel puts but out. But everything I've heard about Sharknado 2, which I have seen, is that this is the one that just says, you know what, let's go full-blown silly, have fun, and... I was shocked as anybody that I actually kind of was having fun along with it. Um, This is not what I would call a masterpiece of comedy or comedy horror, but it was surprising. One of the ways is the way they do like the makeup shotgun on the Simpsons of like C-list celebrities that are fired over every frame of this thing. Every shot of this film has a C-list celebrity in it for five seconds. Yeah. And it's weird too, (laughs) because it's almost like an episode of the surreal life with a shark weather event happening as well. Uh, one of my favorite things is that you get to the beginning of the movie and I thought, oh my gosh, oh no, this is Joan Rivers' last movie, that's terrible, and then I realized it wasn't Joan Rivers, it was Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray, 
uh, who does not look very good. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. That's like, yeah. I, there's a lot of people who are pretty Botoxed in this movie. And then there's He's one the, of them. And then there's the Scarecrow with AIDS, which was Andy Dick. Yeah. Uh, who, like, actually, didn't they actually cut all of his dialogue? Where he, he has, just, like, one line. He, he literally has one line. They keep showing him just standing there. If you watch the gag reel, which is actually a remarkably well done gag reel, it's well worth your time. There's a ton of Andy Dick footage that's on the, <laughs> the cutting room floor. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, because it's clear watching it, he just wouldn't shut up and they were trying to get him to be professional and he wouldn't yeah yeah because he's a complete train wreck of a human being it's when al roker gets more lines than you do yeah there's a problem and that's the other thing how did they get the whole cast of the fucking today show to be in this movie multiple times they actually filmed this after an episode of the today show was done filming and the whole you know audience agreed to stay there and be part of it as well that's that's where that's when you know like okay so shark nano yes it's an asylum film but Somehow that one crossed over into being a mainstream pop culture phenomenon. Yeah. And it'll somehow be, it'll be extremely short lived. Don't get me wrong. Like nobody's nobody's going to remember Sharknado in 10 years. But for for that moment, and this is why we have a sequel for that moment, somehow it crossed over and achieved mainstream success. And they did everything they could to ride those coattails. And that's why we have this sequel, which not only has all these B-list, C-list celebrities, but also has references that I'm like – Holy crap, like somebody who wrote this movie is a big film fan because like the opening scene has Robert Hayes from Airplane. Yeah, who like at one point is like – And he's flying an airplane, by the way. He's a pilot. Do you want the fish or the chicken? Like always get the chicken. Always get the chicken. <laughs> always get – and then there's some other – what is the other line he said? Uh, oh, it's running a little hot. Yeah. Which is another line from Airplane. I'm like, What? And then they have Judd Hirsch driving a taxi. Yeah. Judd Hirsch from Taxi driving a taxi. I was like, was this movie made in the early 80s? Um, there is a lot of funny points like that. But the basic story is you've got Ian, because even though his mother named him Ian. No, nope, I'm calling him Ian because fuck that guy. His name's Ian Ziering. Ian Ziering from 90210 playing Finn. Get it? Shepard, uh, who is the surviving hero from the last one, along with his ex-wife, uh, April Wexler, played by the Botox mutant that used to be Tara Reid, yeah. who is physically incapable of making a facial expression now, other than looking like she's straining to take a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how much of that is the Botox face and how much of that is her lack of acting ability, but somewhere in between is that magic combination. Um, she's the only one who doesn't seem to get it. In the whole movie, she doesn't seem to understand that she's not in a real movie. Well, the concept is that she has written a book called How to Survive a Sharknado and Other Unnatural Disasters, and the two of them are flying to New York City together when they're about the last movie, which took place in L.A., when they see their sharks in the clouds. And at first they're doing a Twilight Zone parody of like with, you know, John Lithgow or. Yeah, there's Jack something on the wing. On there's the, something on the wing. Exactly. Uh, but then it actually is sharks. Terry gets her hand bitten off, which, of course, leads to eventually, yes, to Army of Darkness jokes. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and uh they get off only for Finn to be like the, you know, Sheriff Brody running around going like, ah, you don't understand. There's a Sharknado, a terrible storm coming. And everyone's like, you are a crazy person. <laughs> Even though there has totally been one Sharknado, <laughs> we don't believe there could be a Sharknado. But uh, he's there. That They meet up with their families there um, with some fun little cameos there by some people. Uh, Carrie Wurr, uh, Vivica A. Fox. Um, Judah Friedlander, you know, who is unrecognizable without his glasses and trucker hat. I'm just going to point yeah, that out. Little, and Vivica A. Fox, who has clearly been eating since we oh, saw her last. Poor Vivica she still looks good, but yeah. yeah, she's like the last five years or so have like, like the, the being a woman in her forties has kicked in. Yeah. That's unfortunate. 
Well, you know. When she starts looking like Biz Marquis, who's also in the movie, that's when she should be worried. <laughs> yeah, Biz Marquis not looking good. No, no, no. <laughs> not sounding good. Did he have a stroke sometime? <laughs> he wasn't beatboxing, so I couldn't tell <laughs> if they had dubbed him. And then, of course, Jared from Subway for no fucking reason whatsoever. Why not? We could get him. I mean, they, they talk in the extras. There's a whole extra feature about how we got who we was you know the cameos where it was like there was a bunch of people coming from la but then it was all last minute and then there was a lot of last minute like literally like six hours before filming making phone calls around new york who can we get who can we get (laughs) you know let's just fill this up with people when between jared uh being there and all the flatiza ads on the sides of buses i really thought there was gonna be a plot point where they killed the sharks with explosive diarrhea (laughs) Uh, yeah, I guess they must have supported this uh, movie on some. I but, guess so. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said with this in New York rather than L.A. with more of the familiar landmarks. There's a, you know, running from the giant boulder Indiana Jones style that in this case is the head of the Statue of Liberty. Because <laughs> that know? thing's head just won't stay on every it, monster movie. And it just won't stop rolling either. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's like, wait, shouldn't it have slowed down by now? Um I mean, it's filled with bad acting and silly CG effects, but I think a lot of it is Finn playing the straight guy through this whole thing. Like, he's playing Ash, pretty much. He is, like, this superhero of, of like, badasses to such a hyperbolic level, but totally dead, you know, deadpan, that it makes it fun to watch him, quite frankly. Yeah. And the just... You know, keep your eyes open for who appears in the film next, which cameo is going to be there and then be killed by a shark. Some of the silly ways people die from sharks, some of the funny decisions towards the end. I got to admit, this was much more fun than it wasn't. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and, and kind of unexpectedly so. And everything you need to know about the about this movie is encapsulated in a moment at the end where an old redneck throws open a cover of the back of his pickup truck and there's just like five chainsaws. <laughs> And he starts up each one and throws it into the cyclone, and it just starts killing sharks because the sharks and the cyclone and the chainsaws are spinning around, and it's like that's it. Like they're literally just throwing everything in the air and hoping for a miracle. That's exactly what this movie's all about. Yeah, I mean, and it's if you hate this movie because you're like, God, the CG was so bad and the story was so stupid. Well, I mean. If you didn't know that going into it, why did you even give it a try in the first place? (laughs) That is true. Both those things are true. It's totally stupid and the CGI is horrible. But if you can handle that for this kind of movie, this is much better than most films of its ilk. And I've always said my one expectation with any movie, no matter what it is, is just that people are trying. And a lot of people in this movie, surprisingly, seem to be trying pretty hard. Yeah, they do. Uh, With the exception of Tara Reid. Yeah, yeah. Well, she may be trying. You can't tell. It's, <laughs> like got a plastic face. <laughs> I, I, man, I don't even want to see her in the and if they do another crank film at this point. Right? She's just kind of gross looking. Yeah. Uh, and don't forget Billy Ray Cyrus as her doctor because he's there to cure her achy breaky. It's like why is he a Kurt Angle? Downtown Julie Brown was the one that messed with me the most. He used to be a really irritating MTV VJ who's oh. a nurse. And yeah, like, what? Is that downtown Julie Brown? Holy shit. What the fuck? And somebody at the asylum went, we need an actor to play a former athlete, a former baseball legend. Let's get Richard Kind. I'm like, really? Of all the people you could have possibly cast as a former athlete, you cast Richard Kind? <laughs> really? <laughs> and Perez Hilton? Oh, fuck Who, Perez Hilton. Just one of those guys like, well, I was there. Oh, <laughs> uh, classic Hollywood hanger on her, Perez Hilton. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of sad to see Rachel True in this movie so briefly because I actually always like liked her. I thought she had a career ahead of her, and she like, might still uh, starting to look like no, no. Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. Sharknado Two, the second one, is a lot of fun. 
And I don't know. I enjoyed it. I had fun. I did, too. I watched this in my, my theater room, like, up on the big screen, and I had a blast with it. Good times. Uh, moving on from there, the last title we're going to talk about today is the Spielberg Director's Collection. And this is my pick of the week for the which record. Which Spielberg are they talking about when they talk about directors? They're talking about the Spielberg who all the films are happen to be the ones he did for Universal Spielberg. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, what a coincidence. Yeah, because this was put out by Universal. Oh. Which, so if you're wondering why Catch Me If You Can or something like that's not on here instead of something else, then that's why. Because that was from DreamWorks. That <laughs> you know? being said... Some of his very best films he did do for Universal. Not all of his best films, but a lot of his very best films he did release actually for Universal. And the thing, this is kind of a, like, really, on the whole, I would say this is at its best for being the earliest days of Spielberg. And in the sense that three of these movies have never been put out on Blu-ray before. Uh, what you get in the set is his very first movie, which was a made-for-TV movie, but was phenomenal called Duel. Love it so much. Yeah, finally out on Blu-ray with a ton of extras on it with him talking, Spielberg talking very candidly about the early days in his career and how nobody, like just this one guy believed in him and nobody else did. In fact, he was actively made fun of because he was so young when he got a deal with Universal yeah. that like they, they satirized the guy who hired him for it. Like, come on, what the fuck? You're just throwing money away on this kid. This is the day when everyone working in, tele in television were all people in their 50s who were old Hollywood. You know, there were no young people on set except actors. Uh, you've got his second film, his first theatrical film, The Sugarland Expressed with Goldie Hawn and the actor who played a Walter Peck in Ghostbusters. <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's true. He has no dick. <laughs> um, which is a... Going across the country, uh, chase, very sort of blues brotherish, if you will. Uh, blues brothers cross with Badlands is the best way I can think to describe this as they, um, she, Duel? No, 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 of Sugarland Express. Oh, I was gonna say. Yeah, Duel is a guy being chased by a truck across the, the mountains. Right, on right, a right. Cross country okay. trip. Sugarland Express, another road trip film is Goldie Hawn, uh, basically sneaking her husband out of jail and, uh, driving across the, the, the state with like, Every cop that there is chasing them, uh, while they've got a cop held hostage to try and get their child back who's been put in protective services and given to a foster home. And she is very funny, but very hyperbolic. And, and neither one of them is very bright. He's just in love with his wife and will do anything she tells him, even when he knows it's crazy and probably suicidal. Uh, and it's kind of this weird friendship that they form with this cop that they've held hostage along the way. And it, it is a genuinely funny movie. Not as good as either one of the movies I compared it to, but still you can see the Spielberg magic is really starting to come into how to work with actors. It also comes with 1941, the director's uh, cut and the original theatrical cut. Um, 1941, well regarded as one of Spielberg's worst films, but still held up as a cult classic. I don't understand. Like, people, like, I think it's one of those situations, like, when we talk about the Marvel movies. Yeah. And it's like, oh, Thor 2, so awful. Iron Man 2, so, I'm like, In they're not awful movies, they're just, co compared to the lofty expectations of the rest of the greatness that is the Marvel canon. Right. And I think it's the same way with 19, I actually like 1941 a lot. Yeah. I mean, I understand its flaws, but it's like, people talk about it as if it's like, you know, Plan 9 or Ishtar. Yeah. To say it's, like, it's weaker. Than his other films is true. Yeah. But to call it a bad movie is ridiculous because it's, I don't think it is at Agreed. all. It's a lot of fun and it's one of the very few John Belushi starring films that are out there with him being crazy. I mean, it's like, like almost airplane spoof level of like world of war movies. Yeah. You know, it's just probably at its worst overlong. 
which yeah. having an extended cut does not do it any favors. Yeah, probably think. not. Um, you've got Always, which is the only one from the set I have not seen with Richard Dreyfuss. It's I still haven't seen one it. of uh, like late '80s Spielberg heartwarming type movies. You know, the, what are you gonna? I, I'll watch it eventually, just because it's Spielberg. <laughs> Jaws, which of course, as everybody knows, got that beautiful, wonderful re-release just re- recently that was really fixed up and has a ton of good extras on it. Same goes true for E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park the Lost World, which are all included in this collection, along with a big booklet, uh, a really cool slipcover book for with a different page for each one that you slip in the cardboard, just like how I like it best. Um, <laughs> and, a, and a full cardboard slipcover that that goes into. This is a very attractive set. It's very uh, small, considering how much stuff comes in it, like in terms of like shelf size. It's... It's exactly – it's my favorite way for them to build like, you know, on a on a actual real-world dimension size a box set. I wish they would make them all this way. Mm-hmm. And it's – there's just so much good content in this that if you don't have this stuff already on Blu-ray, this is so worth your money. I mean, geez, just to – I mean, as a student of film, to just own the original version – the original films by Spielberg is feels like something you should do. I think I might buy this set just for Duel Always 1941 and Sugarland Express. Yeah. Like, cause, well, 1941 may have gotten a Blu-ray release already, but I don't think those other three have. And I think that's worth owning. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think this is great stuff. Um, there's so many good movies on here. Even if you already own them on DVD or Blu-ray, this would be worth getting double dipping for them. So yeah, this is my pick of the week. This is just great, great stuff. 34 page companion book too. And lots of, lots and lots of bonus features. So nice. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. But before we go, of course, we have to do our giveaway. And this week, we actually have a copy of Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, my God. Check that out. It's on Blu-ray, too. Like, the biggest release of the week. And we have a fucking giveaway copy of it. It's awesome. And it's mine. No, I mean, it's yours. <laughs> so here's how you can win. You're going to follow us. Uh, we do all of everything on Twitter. So follow us at one of us net. And then I want you to tweet at me with the best day of your life. The day that if you had to relive over and over and over again, you would be so happy. Tell us what happened during that day. It could be... It, we would prefer it was something that really happened to you but if you want to be a little crazy with it that's fine too just hashtag that uh edge giveaway we'll pick our favorite and that person will win a copy open to u.s residents only so sorry yeah we'll get around to you other guys eventually eventually yeah but that's it digital noise done done hit hit stop hit rewind listen to it again but isn't there something we usually say before we leave uh good night crazy no no uh have a pleasant tomorrow no Good luck. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I think I remember. It's uh, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Criterion to Sharknado, we review them all. No. Oh, wait, yes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>